Hello everyone, I'm Dalton Burdett. I'm Ryan Warner. And we are the Movie Knights. Well, some of them. If you're watching this, it's because you want to hear our uncensored and unfiltered thoughts and opinions about the world of movies. So kick back, grab a snack, and thank you for being a part of the conversation. We'd like to start off the show by thanking our partners, the Great Movie Radio Show and the Podcast City Network. You can find links to their stuff in the description below. Ryan, hello. How are you, my guy? Oh, I am great. How are you? I'm just chilling. A uh, life update from a couple episodes ago. My unemployment finally came in, so I'm chilling. I'm chilling. Yeah. Nothing but, to worry about anymore. <laughs> never. No, but uh, my theater actually opens within a few weeks. I don't know when I'll be brought back, but that's still cool to know. Mm-hmm. That you know that movie theaters are just opening in general. And, Slowly but surely. And uh, New Mutants is supposed to come out August 28th. We'll see. And uh, I, will, I might cry when that movie starts, just because I've wanted to see it since 2017. Yeah. <laughs> so... It'll be it's a long time coming. It'll be an interesting journey. But uh, we're going to go ahead and jump right into the entertainment news section of the show today because we have tons of stuff to get into. Lots to digest here. I'm really excited. Mm-hmm. You ready, my good man? Absolutely. Let's kick it off. Right, coming at you first, this one comes to us from Deadline. Captain Marvel 2 is officially happening. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't like officially put it on like the Phase 4 slate yet, but we're assuming that it probably will be, maybe even Phase 5. Mm-hmm. But... It has now found a new director from the previous film. It will be Nia DaCosta, who is directing the Candyman reboot that comes out this September. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, Disney either got reached out to watch it or was really impressed by her pitch. But either way, they are ready to give Captain Marvel 2 to Nia DaCosta. And if she's been handpicked by Jordan Peele to direct Candyman as well, then we really got nothing to worry about. Because obviously, she's impressing a lot of the right people. So... I'm really looking forward to um, her directing Captain Marvel 2. Mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to Candyman, and I'll probably get a better idea of how she'll direct it once I see Candyman, because yeah. we haven't seen the new one yet. And if Candyman really sucks, then obviously I'll be worried, but the trailers have looked great, and um, it, she definitely looks like she has her own style, at least from the marketing of the film already. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm looking forward to Candyman and Captain Marvel 2, especially if Candyman is good. What are your overall thoughts on this? Well, I'm very glad that uh, Marvel handpicked her for Captain Marvel 2, which I'm really hoping that she went in there with a killer, killer pitch. Uh, I don't think I've seen any of her movies. I don't know if Candyman is her first I think movie. Candyman is her second feature. Oh, wow. So yeah. picking her right up. At, it seems like that Marvel really likes to do this with directors, mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. indie filmmakers who don't really have a name for themselves, which, honestly, we haven't seen like a bad marvel movie and i think that she's gonna you know knock it out of the park just like every other movie that we've seen in the mcu i don't see why it would be any different coming from her you know yeah i think she's really gonna knock out of the park and uh personally i thought the first captain marvel movie was good yeah i wasn't like my my socks weren't blown off it was like Um, mid to lower tier mcu but it was still pretty good absolutely but since she's already established as a character and we've seen her a few times Mm now i'm really hoping that she can just hit the ground running with Captain Marvel 2, and she can really just knock it out of the park. Yeah, and, you know, I didn't really love the first Captain America movie all that much, but then Winter Soldier came out in Civil War, and then Mm -hmm. it was Captain America all the way. So maybe we can see the same thing here. Absolutely, and I'd really like to see that, especially since a lot of the uh, older Avengers are out of the picture now. It's Mm -hmm. really up to these new Avengers to keep these movies and keep this universe moving forward uh since we don't have captain america anymore we don't have iron man uh it's really just onto these new characters to really keep the universe running and i think a key contributor to that will be captain marvel herself so i'm very excited to see what direction she's going to take captain marvel 
Yeah, no, me too. Let's go ahead and dive into our next story, Ryan. This one is makes me personally very, very excited. Mm-hmm. Um, this one has been reported by all the major trades. Apparently, on a recent Lionsgate earnings call, the CEO, John Fevelmeyer, Fevelmeyer, John F. Favreau. <laughs> no, God. Uh, CEO of Lionsgate said in an earnings call that, yes, they talked about shooting John Wick 4, how it was delayed, and that they're also going to be shooting a John Wick 5 back-to-back with John Wick 4, which is just nothing but exciting news. We thought they were going to be done after three, and we're going to get two more. We thought they were going to be done after one. Yeah, right? (laughs) So um, I think this is really exciting news. I'm glad Mm -hmm. that they're going to shoot them back-to-back because while Keanu still still has it, he's not getting any younger, so I'm sure they're understanding that and trying to capitalize and use him as much as they can while he has this time. Mm -hmm. And also, um, I think this is nothing... I, I don't see any downside to this happening, especially because... The John Wick franchise has always had been critically well received and made a bunch of money. John Campia actually did a really good breakdown where he said, he just showed like the budgets and the finances for each John Wick movie and showed that the first movie made um, three times its budget or four times its budget. The next one made five times its budget. And then the next one made six times its budget. Or maybe it was two, three, four, something like that. But yeah. they, they keep like making money, 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 money off of these things and only increasing the budgets ever so slightly. Yeah. So naturally, I think that they have the confidence to pull this off and do this. I think it's a great idea. And um, just what are your overall thoughts on another um, John Wick movie coming and um, the fact that it's not just four, but like another one, like four and five, and that they're going to be shooting back to back. We're going to have a franchise. (laughs) I'm very excited. Uh, I love all the John Wick movies. They just get better and better with each movie. Uh, And I don't know what the budgets are. It's not something I've, I've ever looked into, but just knowing what's in those movies, it doesn't seem like the budgets are even that big to begin with. Uh, it seems like they're very low budget because most of it is action. So it seems like most of the budget would be going into action choreography and some of the set design that goes into the, into that. Uh, so naturally, I'm very excited to hear that they not only have a fourth one, but a fifth one. And it seems like whenever they shoot movies back to back, it always... not I don't want to say always, but from what I've seen, it works out in their favor because they are still in that mode they're still in that character they're still in that groove to really grind out another film because uh, i believe they shot infinity war and endgame back to back or yes. pretty much at the same time um so i feel like four is going to be good but i feel like five is going to be even better because they're going to be able to have that same mojo going into five and yeah. have that same energy and that passion going into five yeah and this isn't confirmed but it feels like since they're doing them back to back that maybe the stories in four and five are pretty connected and that's why they're doing it exactly and that's what i was uh, starting to think about with one and two because yeah. two starts off the second one ends mm-hmm. or three starts off the second two ends. yes yes yeah, yes yeah. whenever he's running yeah. uh, away from the hotel so mm-hmm. yeah it's just it's a fantastic threequel. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. but it's going to turn into a fantastic franchise. The action, like I said, only gets better. And I'm very excited to see where the story is going to go. Cause like you said, after three, we thought that was it, but mm-hmm. somehow they're still going to keep us hooked. They're still going to keep audiences going and they're still going to make their money. And the action's still going to be spectacular. And the action gets better with every mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I just don't know how they do it. Yeah. And from what I understand, um, the director of the, of the first three films is going to do four and five as well. Good. Chad Stileski, that's his name. It was Leach. Yeah, he did uh, Atomic Blonde. That was David Leach. Chad and David both did one, and then David went off to do other right. projects, and Chad stayed with John Wick. Okay. Yes. 
Um, also in that Lionsgate call, they were confirming other projects, and turns out they're going to make a Dirty Dancing sequel with Jennifer Grey returning in the role. Cool. To me, that doesn't mean anything because I haven't seen Dirty Dancing, but I know oh. I know it's a well-loved movie. It is a very good movie. Unfortunately, Patrick Swayze can't be in it because he passed away a few years ago. But um, all we know about it is that it's going to be directed by the director of Warm Bodies, whose name is Jonathan Levine, and it's going to be written by Mickey Daughtry and Tobias Iconis, who wrote Five Feet Apart and The Curse of La Llorona. So this might suck. But apparently, I've never seen Warm Bodies, but apparently that was good. So maybe in the hands of the right director, this can go well. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm a big fan of the first movie. My mother loves the first movie. And um, I would like, I'm curious to see Jennifer Grey come back and reprise that role. I know you haven't seen the movie, but just overall in general, I know you've talked about before the idea of like actors returning to franchises years later kind of excites interest for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Does this spark interest for you to see the original and possibly this one when it's released? Oh, absolutely. I haven't seen the movie, but funny enough, I have seen a play of it at the Dr. Phillips Center downtown. And uh, I actually enjoyed the play. So I pretty much kind of know the movie. Um, But it does spark an interest in me to go back and watch the first movie uh, because she is coming back to reprise her role. And that's always exciting to hear whether you're a fan or not, uh, like I've stated previously. So uh, ultimately we have to see kind of where the story goes because Patrick Swayze is, uh, unfortunately, he has passed, so he won't be able to come back. So how they're going to tie up his story, it's going to be very fascinating because I'm assuming they end up together, whether married, dating, so... um, We'll have to see what they do with his character because I hope it's very respectful with what they do. So, yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to it as well. Hopefully, hopefully it can be good, but we'll see. Yeah. We'll have to see. Um, like I said, we have tons of stories, so sorry if it seems like I'm rushing through stuff. But uh, you love Ben Affleck. I love Ben Affleck. We all love Ben Affleck. I want to give him a hug very badly. I'm glad he's happy with his new girlfriend, Anna de Armas. It's the only celebrity couple I follow for those two. (laughs) They just warm my heart. (laughs) He just looks like a much happier person. I'm so proud of him for all that he's overcome. Every photo I ever see of them two, Mm -hmm. Anna Armas is always like hunched over laughing her ass off. So he must be some funny MFer, dude. Oh, he is. He is, totally. And uh, speaking of Ben Affleck, wow. Oh, oh, segue. (laughs) Um. He is going to. He has a new project he's going to direct, which makes me excited because I love him as a director. He's going to direct the adaptation of Big Goodbye, which is the behind-the-scenes story of the making of the film Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Chinatown is one of the greatest movies ever made. It's a classic in American culture and cinema, which eventually we'll do for classic movie reviews. Um, but I'm very much so looking forward to this, not only because it's Ben Affleck, but also because it's the making of Chinatown. And from what I understand, it's going to be a like biopic of the making of the movie. It's not going to be like a documentary or anything like mm-hmm. that, from from what the article says on Deadline. But um, also, there's going to have characters in it, like someone's going to play Jack Nicholson, someone's going to play Roman Polanski. Maybe mm. they'll touch on some controversial stuff there. If they didn't, it'd be weird. So they, I think they have to bring it up somehow. Yeah. But uh, I'm curious as to the direction this movie's going to take and just sort of dive into the story of one of the great American noir films. Um, does this idea excite you? And just what do you think of Ben Affleck as a director? Well, I haven't seen any of his directed stuff, but I know... You haven't seen uh, Argo? Mm-mm, never, never. Argo Town. Uh, but I know that uh, <coughs> we had a talk previously that you actually prefer Ben Affleck as a director over an actor, which is very fascinating because uh, I think he's a great actor. Um, so ultimately, I, I, I will go back and watch some of his movies that he's directed before, before watching this. Um, but I will say it 
only has me excited because he's going to be directing this. Outside of that, that's really it. Because I don't know much about the behind the scenes of Chinatown. I've never seen the movie. So I don't know if it's going to be like interesting enough to sit and watch a movie, like a biopic about the making of that movie. Um, I just, I don't know. It just honestly does not have me that excited. The only exciting thing about it, like I said, is Ben Affleck directing the movie. Um, is there stuff that may have happened behind the scenes that you know about or anything? Not that I know about. So that's why I'm curious to watch the movie because I know a lot of films have a lot of like crazy behind the scenes stories. Well, like The Shining is very infamous for having horrible behind the yeah. scenes mm-hmm. and, culture uh, behind it. Yeah, but um, I, I'm honestly looking forward to see who they cast to play famous actors because you know A-listers are going to surround this project because they're going to want to play people who are like their idols. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, how many actors are going to jump at the opportunity to play young Jack Nicholson? Yeah. You know, so I'm very curious to see who's going to be in these roles. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm also just really happy that Ben Affleck's directing a new project because some of his most recent projects he's supposed to direct either got axed because of the Disney Fox merger or, or got Batman. pushed for whatever reason. And then there's his Batman shame. Sigh. Shame, shame. You did not like our game. <laughs> oh my god. No, but uh, but yeah. It's a new Ben Affleck directed movie, like I said, so I'm I'm there no matter mm. what. And uh someone has a small penis. But <laughs> yeah, um either way, I'm looking forward to it. And uh I keep repeating myself because I'm trying to think of a segue to our next story. So anyway, moving on. So segue. <laughs> uh this comes off from the Hollywood Reporter, uh, Jason Bateman. And the Game Night writer reteam for a movie called Superworld. This is based on an adaptation of Gus Grieger's um, novel set in a world where everyone on the planet has superpowers except for one man. And that just sounds like such a fascinating concept. Yeah. And it's very much implied that Jason Bateman will play the role of the man without the superpowers. And uh, Especially since he's the confirmed actor and yeah. you would think that he would be the one man out. Yeah, and, and obviously it's going to be from the writer of Game Night, but this person also wrote a movie called Accepted, which is one of my favorite comedies ever. Is I, that the college one? Yes, okay. I love love that little movie. And um, I also really loved Game Night and I love Jason Bateman. I think mm-hmm. he's multi-talented in all areas of filmmaking and I really like him as an actor as well. And just this overall concept sounds hilarious and I think these two teaming together can be a really great thing. And Jason Bateman's production company is also going to help produce the film. So clearly he believes in the story, not just the on-camera portions of what he has to bring to the table. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I'm really excited about this. I hadn't heard of this um, property before, but now it has, it's piqued my interest and I'm really looking forward to seeing this on the screen. But how about you? It sounds like a very fascinating idea and game night is absolutely hilarious. Jason Bateman is outstanding in that movie and everyone has great comedic lines in it, great comedic timing, mm-hmm. and a lot of that is due to the funny writing that's oh, that yeah. comes from that movie. Oh yeah. Uh, so I'm glad to know that they're teaming up again, and Jason Bateman actually believes in this project, like you said, with his production company helping fund it and producing it. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see it. it it's a very fascinating concept because everything you see nowadays is like one superhero in the normal world, you know. So it'll be nice to see like the roles reversed mm. to that and. Uh, you know, Jason Bateman's going to be extremely pissed off. Like, why is it me that <laughs> yeah. is normal? Like, why me? I would yeah. be able to do all these great things. Yeah, I, I, I can't wait to see how he how he plays that. Yeah. It's going to be really, really fun. And uh, just, I'm picturing, like, Michael Bluth, like, from Arrested Development, like, as that character, like, him doing something like that. Maybe mm-hmm. he does something completely different. But uh, either way, I'm excited Jason Bateman's doing this. I'm excited that this project exists because, like I said, as soon as I saw the log line, I was like, oh, my God, I have to see this movie when it comes out. Yeah, it's it's such a fascinating concept. And there's it just seems like there's an endless number of things you could do with that idea. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. 
Uh, we're going to go ahead and move on to another story that we have. There's a big story at the end that I want to save for, so I'm trying to get to, like, the other ones. It was a huge news week, ladies and gentlemen. Um, from the director of Lion, Garth Davis, according to Deadline, is going to direct a new Tron sequel with Jared Leto in the lead role. Um, it is unconfirmed whether this is directed to the first Tron sequel that they did, Tron Legacy, which starred Olivia Wilde, and I forget the lead actor's name, but Jeff Bridges also came back from the original, original Tron to be in it. But um, literally, the only details that we have is that Jared Leto is going to be in it and that that guy is going to be directing it. Um, I've never seen any of the Tron films, but I know people who absolutely love those movies. And I plan on watching them eventually, and we might even have to do a franchise spotlight once this third one comes out. Mm -hmm. But um, I know that Disney's talked about doing another Tron for a long time after Tron Legacy, Mm -hmm. but it didn't perform quite as well as they'd hoped it would. And it was kind of split with people and critics. But, like, there seemed to be, like, a group of fans, passionate fans around it, just Mm -hmm. the whole Tron story in general. And I think that um, it'll be interesting to see how this movie goes, what directions they take, maybe the different visual style. Because I know Daft Punk did the score of the Mm -hmm. second movie, so maybe they come back and do it again. Yeah. Who knows? But uh, either way, I am curious because, I mean, Jared Leto's an award-winning, an Academy Award-winning actor. And from what the little statements he's made about Tron, he seems very passionate about doing this. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to what he does. Um, what What are your... If you have any thoughts on this, how, just how do you feel about this happening? Uh, I have no connection to Tron, but like you, I know people who absolutely love these movies. I don't know anything about Tron, not going to lie. They race cars and there's pretty lights. That's the extent of my knowledge, and Jeff Bridges was in the original one. And uh, that's really all I know. You know, uh, it's a shame, but I will inevitably watch these movies uh, because I know that they have a huge following um, and they are they are well-loved. So I will eventually watch them, uh, but speaking on Jared Leto, I know that he doesn't really do films unless it's something he is passionate about or something that he loves because he's very, uh, he likes to go method yeah, with how he takes on movies. Absolutely. So it always gives me hope to see him in a movie, even though like a lot of people like kind of give him shit for Joker, but he mm. was passionate about that, mm. even though he kind of got screwed, and that's a whole story in its yeah. own. And apparently there's tons of footage we haven't even seen. Exactly. Joker, yeah. um, but I know that he doesn't do anything unless he's passionate about it, so there must be something in this story, something about this that he's passionate about, which if someone is passionate about a film that they're making, it makes me passionate to go and watch it, because uh, it means that they truly believe in it, so why can't I, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, um, I'm going to go see it, and I'll definitely check out Tron 1 and 2 before I go see it. And, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, no, really looking forward to that. Absolutely. And finally, the big boy story. The I think the biggest thing that happened in news, uh, entertainment news, and that is a federal judge has given the green light to terminate the Paramount Consent Decrees. What does that mean, Dalton? Please tell us. I'm so glad that you asked. Um, In the golden age of Hollywood, way back in the day. Like five years ago. Oh, God. (laughs) No, um, in the 40s and 50s and mm-hmm. 30s, basically, um, movie studios also had the right to own movie theaters, completely just verti- vertically integrate and own everything about movies. They could produce them, distribute them, exhibit them, everything. So, for example, Universal Studios, the production company, could own, let's say, like AMC and just own all of yeah. AMC, and then they could only play Universal movies at those selected theaters. Yes, and this raised a lot of antitrust concerns at the time, just like from a legal perspective. Mm -hmm. And then so they made this thing called the Paramount Decrees where the biggest studios in the world 
could no longer be allowed to own any type of movie theater. Mm-hmm. And but there was more to that. One of them being block booking, which we'll bring up here in a second. But um, the the big thing is that has now been thrown out, and this hasn't this doesn't have it doesn't have anything to do with COVID. This was a process that happened like a year ago, and okay. it's just now catching up and doing it. But they have been officially thrown out. Now, ironically, at the time they were made, like Disney wasn't a big studio at the time, so like Disney was never even barred from doing it the whole time, just hmm. because like. But it was, but that's also a legal precedent issue, right? Like maybe if Disney had tried to do this, then they could get sued and be like, "There's legal precedent for these other studios," and it'd be a whole mess anyway. Yeah. Um, like one of them mentioned, like they can't do it is RKO Pictures, which did like Casablanca and stuff. Like it was an old, hmm. you know, production company and distribution company. But regardless, um, this has brought up a lot of concern within the film industry about, oh, oh my god, like now movie theaters, like or I'm sorry, movie studios can really do whatever they want now. Like, this is bad. Isn't this really, really bad? Well, the reason that the judge threw it out and decided that they're no longer needed is because they've decided that we're in a position now where none of that needs to happen and that studios aren't going to be tempted to do so. And I I agree with the portion of getting into the exhibition business, like buying movie theaters for the most part. But block booking is a part of that deal, that they banned block booking back in the day when they did that. And that is what concerns me about something that could potentially happen. So what's block booking? Thank you. Man, you're you're catching everything I'm putting up there. I'm ready, man. I'm ready. Uh, block booking is the process of kind of bullying a theater chain into taking more than one of your movies in order to show a movie that's going to obviously do very well. So, uh, for example, let's say Warner Brothers um, was negotiating a tenant release with um, Regal Cinemas. And they went to Regal and said, hey, do you want to show Tenet? And they were like, yes, this is going to be make a lot of money. We'd love to show Tenet. And they're like, okay, but you have to take Tenet. Um, and then they have their normal negotiations, like, has to show on this number of screens for this amount of time. It's like, oh, but you also have to take this movie, this movie, this movie, and this movie. And when you take Wonder Woman, it has to play for 25 weeks. And when you take this, it has to play for this long. And pretty much it just, like, there was no check and balance of selling a movie and you'd have to take a bunch of other smaller movies with you to sort of force one theater chain to specifically play a certain company's movies. Hmm. And the reason why that that was deemed illegal is because it was anti-competition. There was no way to have several distribution companies play at the same theater. It made it pretty much impossible. Right Now, nowadays, with bigger chains like AMC and Regal and Cinemark, they probably wouldn't have the biggest problem with this. But the fact that block booking is legal now obviously means that some studios are going to take advantage of this Absolutely. in some way, shape, or form. Because it's, it's more money Money, for them. money, money. Yep. And this is going to completely eliminate independent theaters. Mm-hmm. Because may, think about a theater that has one screen, three screens. Yeah. If they want to show a big blockbuster, now they're going to be bullied into deals where they're going to pretty much be showing one company's movies for an extended period of time. It could be up to a year. And there and there could be movies that aren't going to make them much money except for the one blockbuster that they need. Mm-hmm. So it's really problematic. And that's the one part of the decrees that I'm really upset that because like they overturned the whole thing and that was part of it. Mm-hmm. I'm really upset about that. Now, there is a two-year grace period where movie studios still can block book for two years. But I would really feel more comfortable if studios came out and said, like made it like a signed agreement they're like hey let's all come out and agree not to black book movies i don't see that happening unless the movie theaters start to like push back and say hey no Mm -hmm. but um this is kind of going to get swept under the rug like this whole thing so we probably won't see this become an issue for another two years Mm -hmm. 
But I, I see a lot of people online being concerned about, oh, um, people can buy movie theaters now. Like the like Universal Pictures can own movie theaters. Disney can buy its own movie theater and like only play Disney movies. That's crazy. It's like just because they can doesn't mean that they will. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is be- with an asterisk. And the reason I say that is because movie studios know more than anyone what a very thin margin business movie theaters run. They're barely profitable at the end of a year, sometimes not profitable. It's very much yay or nay could happen, especially 2020. It's all going to be negative. Mm -hmm. So they know better than anyone. Like, yeah, we're not even going to touch that shit. We we make more money selling movies to them than trying to control the movies that are in there. We're good. No, thank you. So I don't really see that being a problem. Um, Except for, because Netflix has talked about having interest in buying their own theater chain for years. Mm -hmm. And something that I could see happening in limited cities is Amazon. I think more Amazon than Netflix. Amazon and Netflix creating or buying a very small theater chain so that they can have easier consideration into Academy Awards. It makes it less of a hassle Mm because they have to play theatrically in certain cities for a certain number of times. Of course. And... Especially for the reason why I think Amazon's more likely to do it is because Amazon, how they do it is they put their movie in theaters first. And then as soon as it's out of theaters, like not long after that, it's on Prime. Yeah. Even before it's on like Blu-ray. And that's how they've been doing it. And they've had great success doing that. And so I could see them for sure getting like maybe creating one theater chain that has a location in LA, a location in New York, a location in Chicago, a location in Texas, you know, mm-hmm. and then just doing that for their films. And I could see Netflix, Hulu, other places doing following, some, suit, following yeah. suit, but I don't think any of the major players are going to do anything like that. And cause like one thing I saw, was like, Oh, Disney is going to buy AMC and now oh, chaos. It's like, yeah, Disney's not in a position to buy anything. They're losing so much money because of COVID and they just bought Fox last year. Which means year. they inherited, inherited all their debt. So and, they have to pay that off. And that costs mega billions worth of dollars. Things They're are not, not buying in Disney's favor. anything. I think they will block book the shit out of theaters though. When they get the chance. So I do have a question for you about block booking because out of this whole conversation, that is the most fascinating part to come out of this story. Mm -hmm. So because of the two year grace period before anyone can block book, do you think that we're going to see legal movement of like, hey, you can only like we're putting a limit on how many movies you can block book, like like three movies, two movies, five movies. Or do you think it's like. Do whatever you want. It's a free-for-all. It's the wild, wild west. Well, as of right now, in two years, it's going to be the wild, wild west. I think instead of like, oh, you can only book two or three, I think hopefully over the course of the next two years, you're going to have theaters be like, no, we're not going to show movies if you block book. Like, no. So you think it's going to be more pushback from the theaters rather than legal? Oh, oh, yeah, no. I I think the theaters will try to get a legal representative to prevent block booking from happening. Because I could, I could see. I think it'd be fascinating because we briefly talked about it before the podcast, and you said because of block booking, we saw a rise in B movies in the '40s and '50s, yes, and they became very popular. Yes, it would be very fascinating to see a legal standpoint where they decide to put a limit on how many movies you can block book. Like, let's say the limit is three movies. So we see Universal Studios come out with their blockbuster. They're like. Here is X movie. It's going to make a billion dollars. 
but you have to take these two smaller independent B movies that were trying to like help filmmakers out, like come on the uh, up and coming, you know, that maybe they didn't want to put a lot of money into the budget, but they're still like small indie films that Universal decided to take up and snatch. Do you think that that's a possibility? It's an optimistic way of looking at it, mm-hmm. but that would have to have a completely different mindset as to what block booking was originally used for. Because mm-hmm. when it was originally used, it was for movies that they thought were for sure were going to fail. So by selling it with a big blockbuster, it guaranteed it would play in a theater for a certain extended period of time. Mm-hmm. So that no matter what, when people would go buy tickets, they would have to see that that movie is playing and eventually watch it because it wouldn't be cycled out with other movies like normally. Okay, but do you think it's out of the realm of possibility? I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility, but I don't think executives are that nice, to be that, honest. That is fair. That is fair, because all they're in is for the money. Yeah. It's all they care about. Yeah. I would like that, but at the same time, I don't want that to be a block booking reason. I want films to be sold for exhibition for at its an merit. individual basis. Mm-hmm. And oh, so another thing that the Paramount Decrees does is um, when it went into effect exhibitors could watch movies to see if they think it's going to be successful early. Mm-hmm. Now they don't have to. Now theaters can just be like, or their studios can be just like, you're taking it. Hmm. And like, there's like, no, that's the thing that concerns me, not the theater buying at all. Are you, are you concerned at all about the theater buying? I No, no. Yeah, cause you, because you, were, you worked in the theater with me before. I, yeah. I, I know. I worked at a movie theater for five years, and mm-hmm. every year we always got the same talk. We're losing less money this year. We're losing a lot of money this year, more mm-hmm. than last year. Mm-hmm. Even though I knew that, you know, next year would be better with all these big movies coming out, like... We had, what, two years in a row where movies hit over a billion dollars? Mm-hmm. Like, they don't make much money. Movie theaters don't make much money because yeah. most of that money goes straight back to the studios. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see anyone buying theaters. I think the people who benefit from this, like you, are Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, because mm-hmm. they might make a little bit of money on ticket sales if people want to, like, go mm-hmm. watch The Irishman if it came out in theaters yeah. for, like, two months. And that's yeah. the only way you could see it, you know? Um, but that's the only way I see them making money from that um but like you my biggest concern and interest is in the block booking and how they're going to do that mm-hmm. i like to think I-, I like to think optimistically about it but i know that they're just in the movie making business to make money mm-hmm. and that's all they're concerned about but i would hope that somewhere along the line someone's like hey you know what let's limit it to two or three movies and throw out these smaller independent movies that may otherwise not get any love like mm-hmm. like the straight to dvd movies maybe we'll see those in theatrical um runs so mm-hmm. we'll have to wait and see i hope nothing bad comes from this but be with this two-year grace period hopefully something rises up whether it's like hey actually from the theater standpoint they're like actually we don't want to be bullied so we're gonna have one representative and like tell you that this isn't okay or if it's a legal standpoint yeah. where it's like only yeah. three movies. Yeah, no, no, I think I'd be surprised if in two years, if block booking is still allowed. Like, I think theaters are going to actively fight and prevent this from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not they're going to be successful is a completely different story. And whether or not studio, it's going to take one studio to do it. And then the others will follow suit mm-hmm. in terms of block booking. But because what you're going to see is you're going to see Disney go to AMC and be like, you're playing all of our movies for the year. And then you're going to go to Universal, go to Regal, and be like, you're going to play all of our movies for the year. And you have to think about it right now. Who's the big dog in movie ba- movie making business right now? 
Disney. They own Marvel. They own yep. they they own the MCU. They are making the most money right now. And, and that's why blockbooking is dangerous, which is why when you say, oh, like, what about these independent films? It's like, yeah, but then from one studio, but you're not going to get independent films from any other studio because of it's been blocked book with these other blockbusters from the same studio. Yeah. So it, it's really going to be dangerous in that way. And I, I hope that over the next two years, movie theaters proactively fight the idea of black looking block booking now being allowed to come back and i hope that and i'm sure that they've already done work on it and i'm sure that right now i think right now their big focus is like reopening and not going under and then once things start to slowly get back to normal that's when they'll be like all right now how do we prevent from a legal standpoint block booking from continuing to be allowed to happen i Mm -hmm. think that's what you're gonna see wow we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of changes in the next two years i think not only with covid and how things are gonna go from that standpoint but from This it's, it's going to be heavy. Yeah. It's going to be heavy. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to the next section of our show, which is classic movie reviews. What's a classic movie to us? Well, a movie that's at least 25 years old, is in high critical standing, and has a good following of fans. And uh, we went in a way, way, way back for this this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about 1926's The General, starring Buster Keaton, a silent film in that good old silent era. Um, this is a film that is very well known amongst film fans in the film community, but not really that known to the general audience. Uh, a lot of the general audience like has me. <laughs> a lot of the general audience has heard of like Charlie Chaplin, mm-hmm. but uh, I think Buster Keaton is also an, a phenomenal performer in the silent era, especially when it comes to stunts, as we saw in the general. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get into the movie, though, and our thoughts, one thing I want to point out about the movie, really quick, it would be remiss if we didn't mention that the main characters in this movie. Are it takes place during the Civil War, and the main characters in this movie are from the South, and they very much so want the South to win, and that's not okay. That certainly did not age well. This movie came out less than 100 years after the Civil War, when there was still some sympathy, I guess, for the South, and uh, while those moments in the movie do not hold up, and we don't condone that, um, it's still just a phenomenally well-done motion picture, and fortunately, unlike films like The Horrific Birth of a Nation, it doesn't portray any sort of like African Americans at all, let alone in like a negative light. Mm-hmm. But it, it's still connected to the awfulness of the Civil War and wanting the South to win. Like you see rebel flags, it doesn't put a good taste in your mouth. So it would just be weird if we didn't mention that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's definitely a huge negative impact on the film overall. But moving on from that. I really like the movie, and I uh, don't mean to sound like remiss or rude. It's just that I think it's a very well-made picture, and I think that the you know its characters, its stunts, its pacing, all done phenomenally, especially for a silent era film. Mm-hmm. So I'll go ahead and throw it over to you. Um, give me some positives about the general. Well, I the only other silent film I've ever seen before this was Nosferatu, and I okay. will say that movie did put me to sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very boring and very long. But speaking on the general, like you said, the pacing was mm-hmm. well done. It kept you hooked. I was into the movie the whole time. The stunts were absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like, everything was done for real by Buster Keaton. Like, mm-hmm. I've never seen... I mean, yeah, you hear about, like, Tom Cruise doing his own stunts. Yeah. Very, like, life-threatening stuff. But you also have to think about it. Like, he's on cables. Mm-hmm. While, yes, it is very life-threatening. Life. And I don't want to put... I, I, I don't want to put stunt performers nowadays like yeah. down it's, because it's still very dangerous very dangerous very dangerous and i can't even imagine what stunt performers go through now but like 
Buster Keaton, for example, is on the front of a moving train, albeit very slow-moving train, and it looks like it's slow-moving. But still, one misstep, you're dead. Exactly. And and even when the train's going fast, he's, like, running across the whole thing. And it's not like he's on wires or anything. He is just free-running back and forth. Or even, like, when the train is on tracks and there's a board in the way, so he takes another board and throws it off to prevent the train from derailing. And And he only has one shot to hit that piece of wood out out of the track. Yeah. We should mention... This film is about a person who just loves his train engine called the General, and he also is in really in love with this girl. Um, I, her name is leaving me in the film. I think it's Annabelle. Yeah, but there's he doesn't love anything more than his train and this girl. And um, when the girl only kind of really seems to be into soldiers, she's kind of a bitch. But uh, she kind of just like you know you should really go enlist into the army. And he tries to enlist, but they're like, no, you know, we need people who are... Know how to run trains. Run how to, know how to run trains, so we don't need you. But he really loves this girl, so he tries to, you know... That's where the comedy kind of comes in with Buster Keaton. Great physical performance, by mm-hmm. the way. And he comes in and tries to, you know, swindle his way into getting into the army. And it doesn't quite work, but when his train gets hijacked from enemy troops in the movie, he now has an opportunity to not only prove himself as a soldier, but also get the train that he loves so much back. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of the action and stunts happen in this film. It's a train chase movie. Yeah, it's a chase movie. And it's phenomenally well done. Even the, like the cinematography of just like the, the chase sequences themselves, like everything. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's genuinely exciting. And this is like a 1920s silent picture, um, which I, I love silent movies, but even for like a general audience, I feel like even a general audience could like watch this movie and find a lot of enjoyment out of it. Oh, I absolutely did. And uh, not that I speak for the general audience, mm-hmm. but I mean, that's kind of our dynamic, right? Yeah. Like you are the filmmaker, you in, you have a film degree, like you know the technical aspect, whereas like I watch movies for the general enjoyment for it. Yeah. I can say I definitely enjoyed this movie. Mm-hmm. It, uh, I will say you laughed at more of the... Uh, physical comedy than I did Mm -hmm. but still very enjoyable movie very funny movie like you said Mm -hmm. very uh, physical comedy esque and Mm -hmm. you kind of have to be especially with silent films because we can't obviously hear you so you have to portray you have to be big you have to be animated it's almost almost like stage acting in a way yeah and um, also you kind of buy this lead character's journey that he's on like you fully understand um, his desires what he wants and how he and you kind of get a little piece of his intellect how mm-hmm. he's kind of clumsy but that doesn't mean he's an idiot um, there's a great bit where uh, there's an extra train car in front of him and he has to get it out of the way so he puts it onto a side track and then removes the track so that his train can go on and he does it all runs runs back so it's like okay it shows you how smart he is with what he does but what he didn't see is that the train car that he put the other track he put it on just circles back around and goes right back in front of him. So he thinks he's won, and then he gets back into the car, and it's still in front of him, and he has that moment of just like, what? What? Okay. Uh, and he just is confused by the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So I think you know you have sequences like that that just sort of show you know the clashes in his own personality. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, I know that we keep harping on the like stunt action and like chase sequences they blow up a real ass bridge and they blow the fuck out of it with a train and it was awesome looking Mm -hmm. and you know it's just the fact that they did these such huge bombastic things in the 1920s just it's it's you know you're watching cinematic history when you watch the film it's very real it feels real and that's something that i really really like and take away from the film Mm -hmm. overall and that kind of pretty much sums up my thoughts about it i'm ready to give grades but i'll let you give some extra thoughts on it. yeah the last thing i want to say is it sets up a lot of things that seem 
that, that don't seem like they're set up. So, yeah. for example, the one thing I could think of right now is whenever Buster Keaton is hiding under the Union General's table mm-hmm. and they're all talking about yes. the map and stuff and the one general has a cigar that burns a hole in the thing and they start, like, trying to stop the fire from spreading and you're like, oh my gosh, like, are they going to see Buster Keaton? Because when they lift up the uh, cloth, you see him. They're like, oh my gosh, yeah. like, is he going to is he gonna be spotted? And then... They lift the cloth back down, and then it's from Buster Keaton's point of view, and the girl that he loves is in that circle. So, like, they set up a lot of things that don't seem like setup, but it is. Because if that hole wasn't right there, he wouldn't have known that she was in that house with him, that she was captured as well. So, But that happens throughout the movie where they set up, like, little things like that, and then there's a payoff for that setup. But it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like it's setting up anything. It just feels like it's just the characters doing something and trying to move the movie along with what they're doing with their actions but it doesn't feel like set up at all and it feels very yeah. natural yeah it, it does it does feel very natural that's a nice point but uh what, what's your overall thoughts overall great for the film uh i really enjoyed this i didn't the obviously the biggest negative is the fact that this did not age well with the confederacy yeah and that image um but completely taking that aside like basing it solely on the stunts mm-hmm definitely a four stars out of five like i Mm. really enjoyed this movie i enjoyed the physical comedy that buster keaton brought to this movie yeah uh and it's it's far different than any expectation i had for a silent movie yeah oh yeah um i i also i'm I'm gonna give the film an a minus okay um i think it's a really great film i love it especially when i first saw it i saw it in one of my classes back when i was going to school Mm -hmm. i really enjoyed the film um the one bearing it has is the you know nice portrayal of the south and honestly, I think if, if you just flipped that, then this is like, I love this movie even more than Absolutely. I already do. But it's just unfortunate that that's the perspective from it's being told. Mm-hmm. But um, but I still think it is a classic movie. And there are way more offensive films in that era that could be watched. And I think this is one of the lesser ones, even though mm-hmm. it would have been... It would have been a crime for us not to mention. Oh, it absolutely! It's a it's a big factor of the movie that brings yeah. it down. Uh, yeah. But when you really dissect the movie, it's really about this guy who's trying to get this train back that he yes. loves. Yes, exactly, exactly. And moving on to the last section of the show today, this is franchise. Spotlight, where we break down a franchise movie by movie. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been doing the Harry Potter franchise, and we are now at the finale, Ryan. All we have left, <laughs> all we have left to talk about is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part One and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part Two. Now, since this was your first time watching both of these films, I'm going to solely let you start and do your whole thing. Mm-hmm. I know that we disagree vastly on one of these <laughs> movies. On one of these movies, yeah. Um, but I want to hear your thoughts. And uh, after you kind of do your whole thing, I'll do my whole thing, and then we'll collide. Okay. So go ahead. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, part one. So I'm going to say a very, very bold statement, but then I'm going to retract it. (laughs) What? Hold on. Deathly Hallows, part one, is incredibly boring. Very, very boring. However, I'm retracting that statement because I know it has to be boring for the major payoff that is in Deathly Hallows Part 2. My biggest problem with Deathly Hallows Part 1, go to point A to get the thing you need for point B. Go to point B to get the thing you need for point C. Go to point C for the thing you need for point D. It's all just go here for this, go there for that, go here for this. And it just feels like there's nothing there that really like captures me and excites me. Like I just, It almost felt pointless in a way. But also at the same time, not pointless. Because like I said, it 
needs to set up for this major conflict that is going to happen in Deathly Hallows Part 2. Deathly Hallows Part 2 is what is going to set up everything that the franchise, or pay off everything that the franchise has set up. So I understand why Deathly Hallows Part 1 is made this way and constructed this way. And yes, there are very emotional character moments. And I do admit that, you know, some of it is sad, some of it's happy. You know, you're still rooting for the characters even though they're on the run. There's uh, some thrilling aspects. There's suspense. Like, I, I felt all of that. But overall, I felt very detached from the movie because like i said you're just going here for this going there for that and i understand the reasons for it the horror cruxes are very fascinating that you need to collect all of them destroy them before you you know destroy voldemort and it feels very video game like like you have to collect all these little pieces destroy them and then you can take on the final boss and that's Mm kind of how this journey has felt um if they didn't have that if they were doing something else with this movie, it would excite me a little bit more. Like, if they had to go around and, like... I mean, yes, they were still gathering an army, but if they're... If, if this movie was just them going underground and, like, hey, like, do you want to help us? And then there's a traitor there who tries to turn him in, and I know that kind of happens in the movie with one of the characters' dads. Um, but if that was, like, with the whole movie, it would excite me a little bit more. But, again, just going to point A for the thing you need for point B, it just... I don't know. Just boring overall, but uh, do you want to give your thoughts on part one, and then I'll do part two, and then... Go through to the end. Okay. <laughs> Just know that in the words of Adam Sandler and Uncut Gems, I disagree, but we'll I get disagree. There. Yeah, but we'll, we'll get there. Go ahead, go ahead. All right, part so definitely... Two, the, the big finale. The big payoff. Wow-wee. Was this a great movie? Uh, I'd say in my top three of this franchise. Uh, this movie is fantastic. The payoff is very exciting, Everything in this movie works except for one thing. The stupid epilogue 19 years later. Let's send him to the same school that we almost fucking died. Let's send him there. Everyone who's watching this, who's watched and read Harry Potter, you just made them fucking throw their phones. <laughs> but no, it's. I want to hear it. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, and I haven't read the books. I'm illiterate for those of you who know me. <laughs> So <laughs> I was not ready for you to fucking say that. Just the way that casually rolled off the tongue. Oh my god. Yeah, but uh, I never read the books, so my only knowledge of the Harry Potter universe, the Wizarding World, is from the movies. Um, but this movie had tremendous payoff. It felt so good to see Harry Potter and Voldemort face off. Twice, one of the times, Harry Potter fucking eats it. <laughs> yep. And uh, I, I did have a little bit of confusion on that, but you clarified that, which mm-hmm. helped because he definitely died, but somehow came back to life. And uh, I had a big problem with that until you explained it. Um, but it's just, it felt nice to see like big boy villain versus big boy hero finally face off versus like this cat and mouse that's been happening throughout the whole franchise and uh it was incredibly sad to see hagrid like hold harry and what we thought was dead and every character in there thought that he was dead as well and then neville our boy (laughs) neville came through and destroyed the last horcrux it was uh it was nice to see him do something because last time we saw him actually do something, he was standing up towards Ron and Harry and was like, yeah. you're making Gryffindor look bad. And they were like, fuck you, <laughs> Neville. Get out of our way, <laughs> freaking nerd. That's So they finally gave something to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I loved uh, Deathly Hallows Part 2. 
And just remember, film is subjective. I know. <laughs> Even though you're wrong, but it's fine. No, um, I, I don't speak for most of like Potterheads when I say I adore Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Oh, wow. Adore. I love that movie. Love that movie. I think it is the most character-driven, one of the most emotionally resonant films in the entire franchise. And it's a film that slowed down right at the right time, right before it was going to hit its peak finale, to just remind you why you started this journey. To remind you, these are the people, these are the characters that you fell in love with, and this is them at their lowest point possible. It reignited your passion to see these heroes complete their mission. And without Deathly Hallows Part 1 as its own movie, you don't get that reignited feeling and you don't feel that full sense of closure, in my opinion. I also think the film does an excellent job with its use of suspense. Mm -hmm. There are so many scary and suspenseful scenes in this movie, not only with action, but just with cinematography and storytelling. Um, The sequence with the snake... Uh, around the halfway point of the movie when they're going after Ron and Hermione and Harry, the main character. Couldn't forget fucking remember his name. But uh, that sequence is very suspenseful, very mm-hmm. scary. The uh, sequence when the Death Eaters are all having uh, dinner with Voldemort mm-hmm. and you don't really know what's going to happen is very, very suspenseful. You have beautiful character moments like the Ron, or I'm sorry, Harry and Hermione dancing. I thought that was such a beautiful moment and the heartbreaking looks in their faces after they have that one moment of happiness and then they realize the shitty world that they're still in and then it was all felt like it was for nothing. Mm-hmm. Then you have that weird-ass nightmare where Ron sees naked Harry and Hermione make out for no reason, which just scared me. But like, still, but like, yeah. you, you get these characters really find a f- kind of fully grasping where they're at for the last time. And leading into the finale of part two, I thought it was the perfect move to make by Warner Brothers to split this movie in half. So to be able to properly tell from an emotional standpoint the conclusion of the story. Mm -hmm. And I I think um, others copied it and split their movies in half, but for like cash grab reasons. Mm -hmm. Like Mockingjay didn't need to be two fucking movies on Hunger Games side. But it's... I really enjoyed the film, and I know that I'm in the minority of like the movie fans. I love Deathly Hallows Part 1. I do think Part 2 is better, and I do love Deathly Hallows Part 2. I think that it does have emotional moments mixed in as well with all the action, but it's kind of one giant action sequence, and mm-hmm. it, but it works and it flows so well. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, each character kind of gets their moment to shine, kind of gets their knight in shining armor moment. I think that um, the actual final battle with Harry and Voldemort was built up and perfectly executed. Although I didn't like how he kind of confettied away. I wanted him to fucking die, die. <laughs> God. That's what yeah. it looked like. Yeah, that's kind of what it looked like. But, um, but yeah, no, but I, I, and even like where all the characters ended up, I like the fucking epilogue, okay? It seals the end of the story <sighs> and shows them at the end of their journeys. You fucking guy. I will say that part literally knocked down a whole star. Really? <laughs> That's how much I fucking hated that. Wow. Why did it bother you so much? Let me let me get it from you. It's just like just end it with them standing on the bridge. You know, like they won. Leave it 
ambiguous like that. We don't need but like, it's, but it's like it's the end of the story, and it's showing you where they ended up. Yeah, but we know that Harry ends up with Ron's sister. We know Hermione and Ron end up together. We know, like, we know all this. It's just more so. Like, I get it. It's more so for the fans who grew up with these movies and watch mm-hmm. these movies. So, of course, if I would have grown up watching. The, every single one of these movies in theaters, I probably would have cried in that moment. And I know that that's the emotional impact that they were going for, but mm-hmm. just w- kind of all watching right. them all, all right. the way through, it's like... Let me let me, let me me throw a counterpoint at you. Okay. Imagine the very original Star Wars ending without the throne room sequence. Because we know that they won and blew up the Death Star. We know so that they're going to get they praise. Up, before the throne room, what's the last scene? Them blowing up the Death Star and then they go back and celebrate and they're all like freaking out at the hangar and they send off R2 to get fixed. And then it's Han, Luke, and Leia all walking towards the camera as it fades away. Oh, movie still works. No, man, you don't get the throne room. You don't get the freaking song. You don't get freaking Chewie getting screwed out of a medal. You don't get so much in that those final moments. But does the movie still work without that scene? Sure, but it improved it, and I think that... You the, think the epilogue improved Harry Potter? I do. I think if you would have ended them on the bridge, it would have felt awkward as shit. It would have felt really weird. It probably would have felt awkward, but I still think the movie is all the same. No, no. No? Interesting. Interesting. No, no, no. I, yeah, no, I, that I, epilogue I, literally I, knocked down a no, whole star. No, no, I, I think the epilogue is a nice touch, okay. personally. And that's that's mm-hmm. totally fair. Yeah, but uh, I love the conclusion of Snape's character. Oh, my God, yes. Super sad. Very, very, very re- well done redemption story. Yeah, and um, Alan Rickman's performance, fantastic. And, mm-hmm. then, and you can kind of go back and rewatch Harry Potter, knowing how the story ends and knowing whose side he's really on. And it still works, and you can mm-hmm. see it in his performance. Even it's really, really quite fascinating. Yeah, it truly is. Mm-hmm. And even even in that sequence, they really go back and show you like performances that he gave in those other movies, and kind of like in case you forgot, this is kind of what he was doing in the background. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it was really fascinating to see very sad stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, Deathly Hallows Part Two was awesome. I I, I do want to say one last thing before we give grades. Yes, go ahead. Uh, Deathly Hallows Part 1 definitely has one of my favorite sequences in movies, and Mm -hmm. uh, I believe King Arthur does it as well. When they're just, like, running through, there's no score, Uh and they're, like, blasting their wands at them and, like, Mm -hmm. trying to capture them. And that whole, like, chase sequence I thought was well done. No, it was Sherlock Holmes that did that. Uh, I think it's Game of Shadows when they're running through the woods and they're getting yeah. shot at. Yeah. Um. I I love that sequence. No score. Nothing. It's it feels real. Like it feels like that. There's real stakes there. And then Dobby dying. I feel like it's a crime if we don't bring that up. That was so sad. That was so incredibly sad. Mm-hmm. I thought Dobby was annoying oh, as one. hell. Yeah. yeah. Um. Whenever he was first shown, I can't remember. Chamber of Secrets. Yeah. Yeah. It was Chamber of Secrets. I thought he was super annoying there. And then they brought him back for Deathly Hallows Part One. And my God, what a, what a cool character he was. And yeah. they just. Yeah. It, it was cool how he died, I will say. How yeah. Bellatrix threw the knife yeah. and like the, how you discover that it, it went through the teleportation yeah. thing with them. Yeah. I thought that was super well done. And I, I almost cried for Dobby. Yeah. That was very, very sad. But yeah. Dobby did die a free elf. It's because part one is an absolute fantastic movie. Fucking no. And reaches new, <laughs> new heights of emotional depth within the Harry Potter franchise. Interesting. But that, but, that, but I think because of that emotional slow movie... 
you're able to have Deathly Hallows Part 2 where it is one yeah. long action movie mm-hmm. where things happen in between. They're still like running around the battle mm-hmm. and like running yeah. around the castle. And yeah. it only, that movie, I agree, only works because of the way Deathly Hallows Part 1 mm-hmm. was made. I just found it very boring. I I see you, but I don't think of Deathly Hallows Part 1 as just a setup movie. Mm-hmm. I think it as, it is a setup movie, yeah, undoubtedly. But I think of it as a standalone great movie in the franchise also mm-hmm. okay yes that is fair so yeah so we finally reached the end we're not going to do fantastic beasts ryan yes give me your official harry potter well, well give me give me grades for okay. deathly hallows part one and two first and then we'll give your rankings of all the harry potter films so deathly hallows part one comes in at three and a half stars out of five so a little above average okay and Deathly Hallows Part 2 gets four stars. Would have been a five star with that stupid freaking epilogue. But I think your grading system's weird. <laughs> I'll say it. I think your beard's weird. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh Okay, cool, cool. Alright. Now I, I give yes. Deathly Hallows Part 1 an A and Part 2 an A plus. Okay. Okay. So give me your ranking. Best to worst. Oh boy, let's look at all these Harry Potter movies because I did not make a list coming prepared for this. Here, my, mine will be off the top of my head too. Do you want me to do mine? Yeah, go for it. All right, best to worst. Yes. Best Prisoner of Azkaban. Wow. Deathly Hallows Part Two. Okay. Order of the Phoenix. <laughs> Deathly Hallows Part One. Okay. Goblet of Fire. Mm-hmm. Half Blood Prince original Sorcerer's Stone Chamber of Secrets. I think okay. that's all of them. Yeah. I think you're a little wacky with some of your picks no, and you I, can see that on my face. Yeah, <laughs> no, but I that's that's how I personally rank the franchise. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yes. So give me give me your shit. Uh number 1, Half-Blood Prince. God, you and Nick and Kyler all my feel the fucking same way. God, what a fantastic movie. You guys are so whack. I would say Half-Blood Prince. Deathly Hallows Part 2. Okay. Prisoner of Azkaban. Okay. And then we have... Order of the Phoenix. Goblet of Fire. The original Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. And the Philosopher's Stone. <laughs> you want to be real technical. Yeah. And then Chamber of Secrets last. Interesting. Interesting. Very. Yeah. But, uh, well, we definitely disagreed, which is very fun. Very yeah, fun for arguments. Always sakes. fun. But also, um, first time watching, ever watching Harry Potter, mm-hmm. was it an overall satisfying experience? Overall, yes. Um, I will say, though, if I were just to pop on a Harry Potter movie right now on TV without looking at the title, it would confuse me a little bit because, like, you it seems like once they get of, yeah. older, it all seems like one long movie. Like, I would mm-hmm. say from, like, Order of Phoenix to the end, it seems like they all just seem like one mm-hmm. movie. Um, which I don't know if that was the intention behind it, but overall very satisfied with this franchise. I do not love it as much as some of the other fans may love it. Um, Mm -hmm. but there's some diehard. Absolutely. And you know what? More power to you. Absolutely more power to you. Mm -hmm. But I can definitely say I appreciate this film. I appreciate the films. I appreciate everything, all the time and effort that went into making these and a very enjoyable franchise for anyone who hasn't seen the Harry Potter franchise. Please do yourself a favor and watch them uh, all the way through. It is very, very, very wonderful to see the payoff eight movies in. Um, and now when you go to Universal, it'll hit different. It will, absolutely. <laughs> and it's funny because uh, thinking about Diagon Alley, mm-hmm. 
Uh, and then when it was first shown in the movies, I was like, God damn, that's like, <laughs> that is spot on. That yep. is spot on. Yep. yep. It is nuts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now you can know why all those fans were happy when they went and saw it. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. But I, I think that's all we have for today's today's show. That's all I got to say, too. So thank you guys for watching, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.